book of uh, Philippians this morning, chapter 2, where we find ourselves. Some of you may be saying, boy, is he ever going to get out of 12 and 13? (laughs) That's the verses that we find ourselves in this morning. And we're going to try to do that this morning. We looked last week at verses 12 and 13. And, um, you know, as you look at a lot of the different religions in the world, uh, there's not any of them, really, that have a deity like ours. Um, and it seems that a lot of the false religions, a lot of the false gods that are out there, are always distant and they're impersonal. Uh, these are gods that don't have, want to have anything to do with the people that worship them. And, and basically, a lot of them are, are really, uh, they come up with these ideas out of fear. They want to keep people in a fearful mode, and so they create a deity that is just almost unbelievable. And a lot of people who are caught up in these different false religions have a, a long bondage and a long history uh, it, as far as the fear of death and fearing their deity. Um, and, and that's how they, they, they live. And one thing I just want us to, to think of this morning before we get into our text is that, you know, there's a lot of different religions. There's, there's one, uh, Hinduism, that probably has locked up uh, over a billion people in the world in their, their, their belief system. Um, but they really have a, a God that's not a person. Um, he's not a personal spirit. He's basically unknowable. That's the God they serve, uh, Brahman. And, and it's, it's kind of a hard thing to understand from our perspective because it so flies in the face of what Scripture teaches us about our God. Uh, they, they say that Brahman has no moral qualities at all. He's not knowable. Um, he's not describable. Someone said that their God is attributeless. That he has no attributes. He's nothing. And yet they fear. They live in fear. Um, and it teaches, Hindu scripture does, that this God is neither holy nor unholy. He's neither loving nor unloving. He's neither fair nor unfair. And it's just kind of an odd thing for me to think that they have this one God out of their over 300 million gods. And it just flies in the face of what Scripture teaches us about our God. And sometimes we forget that. Um, that's quite the opposite description of what we find in the Bible. The Bible tells us that the God of the Bible is a person. The God of the Bible is a personal spirit. Um, the God of the Bible is personally involved with his creation. Um, he seeks a personal relationship with men and women. The God of the Bible comes to live inside those who put their faith and trust in Christ. And he takes up residence via the Holy Spirit and he abides there. The God of the Bible tells us that he finds deep satisfaction, uh, deep joy in really assisting the believer 
those who put their faith and trust in Christ, to do what He's called them to do. And so Christianity is really set apart from all these different religions and these different gods. And the God of the Bible is just the opposite. We serve a God, beloved, that cares for us, that loves us. That He takes up residence within our own hearts and our own souls so that He can assist us each and every day of this spiritual journey that we're on. See, the God of the Bible is not some overbearing force. The God of the Bible is not of some pagan origin. It's not a God who makes demands on people that could never fulfill them and they're just utterly unable to ever please their God. Because we serve a God that Scripture tells us is loving, He's caring, and He's a personal God. And He, he does make demands on men. But you know what? He, he gives us the ability to fulfill those demands. He takes up residence within us as the Holy Spirit that we can pray and, and we can hear Him speak to us through the Scriptures. Um, that's the God that we serve. And it's just kind of an important backdrop to what we've been talking about because we want to focus this morning on verses 12 and 13 once again of, of Philippians chapter 2. But the Old Testament even gives some different descriptions of the God we serve. In Isaiah 5.26, it even speaks of God as whistling. It speaks of God in other places as talking, as hearing, as seeing, as smelling, as breathing. Um, they speak of God, the Scriptures do, of God having a heart. The Scriptures tell us, in different places, it talks about the face of God, the eyes of God, the ears of God, the nostrils of God, the hands of God, the legs of God, the feet of God, the arms of God. And it says that He walks, He goes to war. They speak of His loving and hating and pleading and condemning and weeping and laughing and comforting and caring and loving and all these different things. And all that wraps up the God that, that has so graciously saved us because our God is a person. And Moses, it, Moses was, uh, spoke to God mouth to mouth, which is just, that, just kind of face to face there. Incredible. Exodus 33.11 says, Moses spoke to God as a man talks to his friend. You know, what, a, what an intimate relationship. Very personal. Turn over to Psalm 18. I just want to touch on this because it kind of gives a good little backdrop here for us. about the God that we serve. Psalm 18. Look down at verse 6. Now, in this psalm, the psalmist is in great distress. He's going through something that's just, just got him totally, totally stressed out. And in verse <clears throat> 6, he says, In my distress, I called upon the Lord. See, that's not a relationship of fear. You don't call upon somebody... You know, some of you maybe grew up in, in households where your dad or your mother was feared. And I don't mean in a healthy way, okay? Uh, I'm talking in an unhealthy way. And the last thing, if you needed help, you were going to do was call on your mom or dad because you knew that, you know, it was just not going to be a good situation. 
Well, we serve a God who says, hey, you know what, I want you to call upon him. And that's what the psalmist does here. He calls upon the Lord. It's, it's a relationship of love, of assistance. Look at what it says. He called upon his, the Lord in his distress and cried out to my God. And he heard my voice from his temple and my cry came before him even to his ears. Then the earth shook. So he cries out to God in this most difficult time. And look at the response. The earth shook and trembled and the foundations of the hill also quaked and were shaken because he was angry, it says. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens also and came down with darkness under his feet. And he rode upon a cherub and flew and he flew upon the wings of the wind. He made darkness his secret place and his canopy around him was dark waters and thick clouds of the sky. From the brightness before him, his thick clouds passed with hailstones and coals of fire. The Lord thundered from heaven and the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. He set out arrows and scattered the foe, lightnings in abundance and vanquished them. He vanquished them. Then the channels of the sea were seen. The foundations of the world were uncovered. At your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of your breath, of your nostrils. Verse 16, He sent from above and He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy. From those who hated me, for they were too strong for me. They they confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He also brought me out of a, into a broad place. In other words, if you've ever been in a lot of stress, you feel very closed in. A lot of people, when they're in a stressful situation, they get very claustrophobic. Well, God says He, he brings us out of that and He brings us into a, a wide place or a broad place. He delivered me. Look at what it says. Because He, what? Delighted. In me. Do you know that God delights in you as His creation? God delights in you? It says, The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, He has re recompensed me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. And he goes on there, but I just want you to focus on that, that He delights in us See, that's a relationship. You know, when, when we go to see the grandkids, I delight in them. We have a good time together. Why? Because we have a relationship. Same thing. When you, when you have family come over or you visit or whatever, hopefully you have a good relationship with them and it's a delightful visit. Now, I know that some of us have relatives that probably, not me, of course, but I just got to say that because this is being recorded. <laughs> You know, they come and stay and you're looking at the watch. Okay, when are they going? Uh, but, but our God is not like that. Here is, is a God who, who wants to relate to us. And this psalmist cries out to God and, and it says the whole universe is in trauma as God acts on the behalf of this one loved one. See, we don't serve a God who has no attributes. We don't serve a God who's a non-entity. We serve a God who, even in Psalm 56, 8, it says that he, he takes a bottle and he fills it with the tears of those who are weeping. 
I mean, that's compassion. That's love. That's caring. It has the idea that he actually keeps them in a wineskin. Must be a pretty big wineskin. You stop me and think about it, because I don't know about you, but I, I've shed some tears in my day. We all have. And it says that God cares so much. When we're hurting, He cares so much that He even collects those tears. It's an illustration of His care for us. He's a caring, loving God with a personal touch. Now back to Psalm 2. You say, well, why did you share all that? Because in Psalm 2, or Philippians 2, thank you. <laughs> my head is this morning. Philippians 2, uh, verse 12 you can see this personal touch that's, that's there. It's very clear. Um, you look at verse 12, you remember what it says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, we've talked about this in the past, and we've looked at that verse and what that means. And if you're interested in that, you can get the, the, the tape. But I want you to understand this. It's impossible to work out our own salvation. That would be impossible if this verse 12 was not followed by verse 13. It would be utterly impossible. And God always gives us the means to do what He says through His Spirit. And that's why in verse 13 He says, For it is, and that's what we want to look at this morning, it is God who works in you, both to will and to do His uh, uh, to, to do for His good pleasure. There's a balance there in the spiritual life. There's a balance in the spiritual growth, in the sanctification of the believer. And we've, we've kind of gone over this in the past couple weeks. It takes all of, of me, everything that I am to accomplish this, but it also takes all of Him. It's not 50-50. It's kind of like a marriage. You know, some people get married, oh yeah, it's 50 No, it's not. It's 100%, 100%, and the thing just doesn't work. And even then you struggle with it. That's just the way it is. It's the way it is with any relationship. And so there's this balance there. And if He left us alone to work out our own salvation, we would be utterly lost. There'd be no hope for us. All of us would, would accomplish absolutely nothing. But... I just find it so comforting when I read verse 13, if I, as I've read over this this past week several times, that it's God who works in us. He, he does this work in us. See, that's the glory, I think, of our, of our Christian walk. That's the, the wonderfulness of it. That God calls us to obey, and then God affects that obedience in our lives. He doesn't just say, hey, go do this and have fun trying to do it. You're not going to be able to and, and kind of sit up there and, and, and watch us in turmoil as we try to please our God who's so distant, so far away. We don't serve a God like that. He comes and He dwells within the heart of the believer to assist them in their Christian walk. God calls us to holiness, but He also affects that holiness in our life. If, if we were just had to be holy by ourselves, we would be, it would be an impossible task. God calls us to serve, serve the body of Christ, serve one another. And He doesn't just tell us to go out and do it in the flesh. As a matter of fact, if we do it in the flesh without His power, it's called sin. But we're called to serve one another, and then He mobilizes that service in us through His own power and through His own presence. 
And as we move more and more to become more like the Savior each and every day, we have to remember that, yeah, there's great effort on our part. That's what the Bible says. But it's also, notwithstanding, God is at work in us. See, that's the, the uniqueness of our, of our faith, of Christianity. The Bible says it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. God taking up residency in the believer. Remember, verse 12, we kind of went over this, is it talks about the Christian working out his salvation. It doesn't say working for, it doesn't say working in, it doesn't working up your salvation. No, it says working out. In other words, allow what was done inside you, that change, that transformation that happened when you came to Christ and you knelt before him and said, God, I can't save myself, I'm utterly lost. Be merciful to me, a sinner. When you made that proclamation, he answered that prayer and he transformed your heart. From a, from a heart of rock, a stony heart, into a heart of flesh that he can move and work and love in. That's what verse 12 is all about. But then we get into verse 13. He's not talking about the Christian working out anymore. He's talking about God working in us. Because that has to happen. God works in us. In you, he says. God says, you know what? Without me, you can do absolutely nothing. Zero. Not a zip. You know, it's, 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 it's all for naught. Because it's God who does it through us. John 15, 14, Jesus said this, If you try to produce something, you must be connected to the vine. Because if you don't abide in the vine, you'll have no source to produce fruit. Because without me, you can do nothing. You know, I don't know about you, but I just... I don't know if you have any fruit trees in your backyard or whatever, but I recently uh, took a couple down. They were just kind of a pain and, and uh, kind of doing some work in the backyard. And so I got my chainsaw out and said, okay, I've had it with these things. And they were, you know, they produced figs. I'm not a big fig eater. And it just messed everything up and got gooey and slimy all over everything. So I cut them down. There, I did it. If you're a tree hugger here this morning, I'm sorry, but they had to come down. And my chainsaw was definitely up to the task. And I kind of enjoyed cutting those trees down. And after I trimmed all the branches off these trees, I put them in a big pile. Some of them are still there. And cut the rest of the tree down. And the one thing I noticed is after I trimmed, it took me a couple weeks to do this. So I, I trimmed the branches off these trees at first. I threw them in a pile. And after a couple of days, their wonderful green living leaves were dead, crackly, ugly things that I had to clean up and put in the bin for the people to pick up. They didn't last on their own in this pile. You know, I could have actually cut this branch off and stuck it in the dirt. It still would have died. Why? Because it wasn't connected to the life source anymore. See, that's what, that's what he's saying. He says, you can't do anything that is pleasing to me unless you're connected to me. Unless you have that relationship with me. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 6, the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in verse 6, he says this, There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. It's God who works in us. Whatever is being produced is not for your own glory but it's for His glory because He's producing it. See, that's where I think sometimes, you know, people 
get things mixed up, even in ministry. Because, you know, there, there's, there, there's some people that apparently listen to, to um, you know, folks when they pat them on the back and, and say, oh, that was a wonderful sermon. I mean, I appreciate that. And don't get me wrong, I, you know, I try the hardest that I know how with my own intellect, which isn't much, to do what God has called me to do. But you know what? It's nothing I do. And, and so many times, if God has given you something on a Sunday morning, praise Him. Praise be to God. Because I guarantee you, if I got up here and said what I wanted to say, you'd probably walk out in two minutes. You know, But that's why we spend so much time in the Word of God, because that's all I know how to do. That's all I know that is safe. When I get over here sharing my own opinion about stuff, I get real nervous. Because who cares? And see, we all have the same spirit. We all have the same Word of God. And we can all dig in there and, and find morsels for ourselves. And that's what we were talking about last week when he says, you know what, you obeyed in my presence, but now much more in my absence. In other words, your spiritual growth shouldn't hinge on, now hear me out, shouldn't hinge on what's going on here Sunday morning. I mean, sure, this should benefit it. Hopefully you come here and you're edified and you're lifted up in your spirit and you're, you're, you're stronger as you walk out those doors. But if that's all you have, if you're just coming here every Sunday thinking somehow the pastor or the music or something's going to be, you know, punch you, you know, give you a punch in the arm and help you through the week, you're sorely mistaken. We all have the same resources. We all have the same time. There's 24 hours in a day, seven days in a week. And, you know, the Bible says that each one of us individually, that's why it says there, work out your own salvation. Don't depend on somebody else to do it because that's not going to work. You need to be in the Word. I need to be in the Word. And, you know, it's just, it's just a very important thing to realize that as you're in the Word, God is going to work in you. And He's going to affect that change that He wants to bring. And whatever is produced in your life, it's for His glory. It's not for our own glory. Because He's at work. Second Corinthians 3, 5 says, We're not adequate in ourselves, but our adequacy comes from whom? God. Because He is at work in us. What an incredible thought. This morning, I just want to kind of go over five things with you quickly that I see here in verse 13. It's kind of simple. And if we, if we kind of just focus on this verse this morning, verse 13, I want you to look at these five elements that, that kind of it just breaks it down pretty simply. Well, he says there in verse 13, the first thing he says, for it is God. And that's the first thing I want us to note. It's, it's God. It's His person. That's who's working in us. The literal Greek says, God is the one at work. And it's, it's an unbelievable truth that the one who is at work in us is God. The God who created everything we see around us. He's the same God that comes and dwells within us because He's a personal, intimate God. He literally works in us, the Bible says has the idea that we're not to be dependent on our own human resources. I mean, God has given us a tremendous amount of resources. And much in terms of, you look around in creation, everything that, that we can work with. But we're not to be dependent on our human resources. We're to be dependent on God. You know, I, I often think sometimes, I remember when I was going to school, 
and you had to study and you had to do some research. You know, you had to go to the library and you had to get books and you'd sit there in a little cubicle and take all your notes and, you know, do all this stuff and formulate an essay and answer the questions, whatever you had to do. And it took a lot of hard work. You know, now I sit in my office and I'm like, you know what, I want to know about Hinduism. What do I do? www.google.com. Hinduism. <laughs> Plethora of information pops before my eyes. And then I don't even have to retype this stuff. You know, you just go up there, you select it, copy, paste, voila. Incredible. Incredible age we live in. Can you imagine? I mean, I just cannot conceive before all this technology. You know, and, and I think that a lot has been lost as a result of that. Because it is so easy. I mean, even in the aspect of, of construction. I think I was... I don't know if it was Mr. Sargus and I were talking. We were putting one of these tables together. Had a bunch of screws on the bottom of the table because one of the legs broke. So we had to put all these, take it all off and turn it and put it back together. And we both had our power drills. And I said, you know what this would be like if we didn't have these power drills? I mean, can you imagine? I mean, it would have probably taken hours to do what we did in 15 minutes. So you, and it's, it's just an important thing to remember that we're not supposed to rely on those human resources. So many times it's refreshing to go over to the coast, sit on the coast with just a plain text of Scripture, not even a study Bible with the little handy notes that are there. Just Scripture. I say, God, talk to my heart. What do you want me to hear? You know, I don't have a commentary. I don't have this. I don't have that. I'm not listening to KFAX, the Christian radio. I just want to hear from you. Sometimes we need to stop and go back and, and wait on God's person because that's who's at work in us. It's the very God that created us. We're not to be dependent upon the holy angels who are sent forth as ministering spirits. They're even for the very purpose of ministering to the children of God, Hebrews 1.14 says, but we're not to depend on them. A lot of us have different talents and gifts. We're not to be, depend on those. We're not even to be dependent on human pastors and teachers and people, shepherds like that. That's, that's not what we're called to be dependent upon. I mean, any one of those things is replaceable. I mean, can you imagine if God said, work out your own salvation for it is other believers that are at work in you? Gosh, you've got maybe a 50-50 chance there, depending on who the believer is at work in you. Or maybe, you know what, God, you know, work out your own salvation for it is the angels that are at work in you. He could have said that. Or he could have said, hey, you know what, work out your own salvation because, you know, you have pastors and teachers and Christian radio and commentaries. All those things are going to be at work in you. No, he doesn't do that. He says, you know what, I'm going to be at work in you. I'm going to be involved in your sanctification. God Himself is working out our sanctification. He Himself is doing it. See, that's why it's so important to understand that that sanctification, that process of becoming more like Christ, cannot and will not be deterred. Because if it is, then there's something greater than God. The Bible says it's the same God who justifies, who wrought justification, who'll bring about sanctification. It's God that's work in us. In that unchanging, uh, that, that sanctification process 
that happens is unchangeable. Now, you can either cooperate with God or you're not. But you know what? He's going to have his will. He's going to have his way because God is never thwarted. He's at work in us. You notice, remember, in Psalm 23, it says, The Lord is my shepherd. We all know that. That's where the emphasis ought to be. We need to, you know, it doesn't, it's not saying there in that psalm, the Lord is my shepherd. It's saying the Lord is my shepherd. That's where the emphasis is. See, there's a lot of shepherds in the world. The psalmist says, you know what? The Lord is my shepherd. That's, that's so important. It's God that's work in us. Psalm 27 says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. And then he says this, The Lord is the strength of my life. It's his person. That's where it all starts. That's where Paul starts. It's God who loves us with an everlasting love. It's God who holds us with an eternal kindness. It's God who keeps us in an everlasting covenant based on everlasting promises in His Word. It's God who gifts and calls us. And it says that those gifts and those callings are without repentance. It's the God who says that whom He justifies, He glorifies. It's the same God who sees us through to the end. Who unyieldingly unendingly, unswervingly commits himself to supply all of our needs in Christ Jesus. That's what the Bible says. That, that same God is the one in us. He's the strength of our life, the God who made the world, the God who upholds the world by the word of his power, the God who is sovereign over everything around us. For all eternity, he lives in us. What an incredible realization. And he's a personal God. Well, secondly, he not only says that it's God, the person that works in you, but in verse 13 he says, For it is God who works. Who works. That word means energized. You know the little energizer bunny? You know, you've seen that commercial? Think of that. It's God who is doing that. It's God who's affecting that. It's God whose power drives our sanctification. Because the flesh can do absolutely nothing without His divine power through Christ uh, applied in our lives. His power drives us to righteousness. His power drives us from sin. That's why we're sustained. We're not sustained because of our own goodness. You often hear people, well, you know, they have a good heart. No, they don't. None of us do. The Bible says that our hearts are, are, are wicked and desperately evil. I mean, you know, and it even says who can know it? God knows it. Don't believe that lie. I know what they're saying when they say that, but still, I mean, you know, you've got to stop and you've got to think. Words mean certain things. See, we're sustained by God, by His power. See, that's why we're eternally secure in Christ. Do you understand that? Because we're not the one doing it. It's God that does it. It's His power that continues to drive us to glorification. It's His power that expels the sin from our life and invites holiness. See, and we preserved, we're preserved because we're energized by the very power of God that created everything around us. 
The Bible says that God is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. Is there anything too hard for Him to do? He has all power. He's committed that power to Christ. And Christ said, you know what? I have all power in heaven and in earth. That's why in Ephesians 3.20, Paul says, Now unto Him who is able to do exceedingly, and then he says abundantly, above all we ask or all we even think, through the power that works, what? In us, that verse says. Maybe you're struggling with something here this morning and you realize, you know what, there's no way I can do this. You're right. <laughs> you can't. Maybe your body's raked with pain or whatever and you can't put up with another day. You know what? You're right. You can't. That's where you continue to trust God. And you know, don't you think for a moment that God does not understand your circumstance because He does, because He's a personal God. And He cares for each one of us tremendously. God can accomplish all that He says He will accomplish. He says it's even beyond your wildest imagination what He wants to do. In Ephesians 4, Paul even says, I can do all things through what? Christ who strengthens me. Turn back to Second Corinthians or Second Chronicles. I'm sorry, Second Chronicles. Chapter 29. I just want to show you this little illustration. Now here in 2 Chronicles chapter 29, we have uh, basically some history here. Um, but it's, it's an interesting portion, an interesting moment in the history of God's people. Judah, uh, uh, basically, to give you a little background here, Hezekiah okay, became king in verse 1. You can see it there. Uh, he was king of Judah. And he was only 25 years old when he became king. He reigned uh, for 29 years in Jerusalem, the Scriptures tell us. And verse 2 kind of characterizes his life. It says there, And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father David had done. He was a good king. He was a noble king. He was a godly man. Uh, and when he ascended to, the, to, to, to rule uh, among the people there, um, he put things in priorities. And he said, the first thing that I want to address is the spiritual lives of these folks together here, these people. They need to address some things. And so he started at the top. And in the first year of his reign, in verse 3, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord, it says, and uh, he repaired them. That was the first step. There had been a real, you might just call it, ignoring of the things of God. In the whole assembly here, uh, the people of God had fallen into sin, idolatry, all this tragic history. And, and here comes Hezekiah, new king, fresh king, a godly man. He opens the doors of the house of the Lord. He repairs them. And he, he's, he's reinstituting worship is what he's doing. And then he basically, it says that he brought in the, the priests and the Levites, gathered them into the square in the east, 
all those who were responsible for the religious leadership of the day and age which they lived, of that nation, he brought them all together. And he said to them, basically, if you, if you look at there, he says, Listen to me, O Levites, consecrate yourselves now and consecrate the house of the Lord, the God of your fathers, and carry the uncleanness out of, from the holy place. In other words, clean up this place and clean up your lives. We're, we're going to start a new thing here. Very direct approach. Okay? Uh, and he started out with the religious leadership. And, and basically, he was telling them very clearly that he, they needed to understand that it needed to start with them. And so now, look at what verse 6 says. It says, For our fathers have trespassed and done evil in the eyes of the Lord, our, our God. They have forsaken him, have turned their faces away from the dwelling place of the Lord, and turned their backs on him. They have also shut up the doors of the vestibule and put out the lamps, and have not burned incense or offered burnt offerings in the holy place of God of Israel. Not a very good thing going on here. Verse 8. Therefore the wrath of the Lord fell upon Judah and Jerusalem, and he has given them up to trouble, to desolation, and to jeering, as you see with your own eyes. For indeed, because of this with our fathers have fallen by the sword, and our sons, our daughters, and our, our wives are in captivity. Now it is in my heart to make a covenant with the Lord God of Israel, that his fierce wrath may be turned away from us. My sons, do not be negligent now, for the Lord has chosen you to stand before him, to serve him, and that you should minister to him and burn incense. And so he says basically there, you know, don't waste any time in doing this. We need to take care of business. Uh, so all the priests and the Levites basically, they're gathered together. They're told that this is a time of spiritual consecra consecration, you might call it. And, and they did. Uh, and they began in verse 17. And you read there on the first day of the month, and if you follow along down to verse 20, uh, after the consecration of the priests and the Levites, King Hezekiah says that he rose early in the morning, he assembled the princes of the city, and he went up to the house of the Lord. And so now he moves away from the religious leaders to the nationally or, uh, recognized leaders, and, uh, and he, he moves on to the rest of the leaders in their little group there. And he says, it's time for you to get spiritually in tune with God as well. It's time to, for you to make sacrifices and sin offerings. And there was a tremendous slaughter for these sacrifices. Um, if you look at verse 32, you can kind of see the, the extent of what I'm talking about. It says, in the number of the burnt offerings which the assembly brought was 70 bulls, 100 rams, 200 lambs, all for the burnt offering. To, that's what I call barbecue. Okay, that's a lot of food. That's a lot of stuff. I mean, that, that, is, that is a major sacrifice. Verse 33. The consecrated things were 600 bulls, 3,000 sheep. But the priests were too few. So they could not skin all the burnt offerings. Therefore, their brethren, the Levites, helped them until the work ended and until the other priests sacrificed, uh, had sacrificed themselves, for the Levites were more diligent in sacri uh, sanctifying themselves sorry, than the priests. Verse 30, 35, also with the burnt offerings were in a abundance. 
uh, with the fat of the peace offerings and with the drink offerings and every, uh, for every burnt offering. It says, for the service of the house of the Lord was set in order. order. Verse 36, then Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced that God had prepared the people since the events took place so suddenly. Now, you say, well, what does this have to, to, to do with all this? See, God is, is basically, through Hezekiah, he's calling on the people. And if you, if you follow down there through, through verse uh, 6 of, of the, the next chapter, verse 30, um, they're going through all this, the, the Passover and everything, and this says that the runners or the couriers say, O sons of Israel, return to the house of the Lord, or God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Uh, this is their, their calling for spiritual revival. Verse 8 says, Do not stiffen your necks. See it there? Verse 9. If you return to the Lord, your brothers and your sons will find compassion before those who led them captive and returned to this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and compassionate and will not turn his face away from you if you return to him. So he's calling for revival. Now here's the key. All the way down to verse 10. The couriers go out everywhere and, and then you come down to verse 12. It says, The hand of God was also on Judah to give them one heart to do what the king and the princes commanded by the word of the Lord. Isn't that interesting? That the hand of God was also on Judah to give them one heart to do what the king and the princes commanded the word uh, were commanded by the word of the Lord. See, the, the king and the princes were the ones commanding the people to return to God because, because it, was, it was the word of the Lord to them. That's how God used them. But then it says that God says basically commanded the people to return to me. And then in verse 12, it says that God gave them a heart to do it. He didn't just tell them to do something if they have fun trying to do it. God energized them to do exactly what he called them to do. And it's that kind of energy, that kind of power that is working in our lives. So don't ever grow weary to the point of saying, well, I guess I just can't, I can't stick to this commitment or I'm just going to you know, cash it all in, whatever. Because it's not you who's working. It's God who is at work in, in you. And if you want to go against the power of God, well, feel free to do that. But I sure would want to do that. Because he's an all-powerful.